I want to show you in the story of Christ's birth the kinds of things God goes through in order to bring blessing into our individual lives. Luke chapter 2, the key verse will be verse 11. But I'm going to begin reading with verse number 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night and Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now I'm also going to read Micah chapter 5, verse number 2. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of these shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now, obviously, the, the disciples and the earliest writers in the apostolic church believe that Micah 5, 2 was fulfilled with the birth of Jesus because they cited but what is amazing is that Micah could prophesy this some several hundred years before Jesus was born, which gives us the, the penetration and the accuracy that the Lord has into understanding the times and the seasons of the future and the ability to take that knowledge and put it into someone else's head and then they can begin to say it or they can write it down. There's nothing about the world that we live in that God doesn't know and understand, and if he knows the number of hairs that are on your head, he certainly understands everything that's going to take place in the next five minutes as well as in the next 500 years should the Lord allow the world to continue that long. But when we look into this story, the birth of Jesus, I think there's a lot we can learn about how God organizes our steps. The scripture says the steps of a good man are ordered by God. Now we've got to be able to define good. We don't mean perfect. We don't mean flawless, but we do mean a man or woman in Christ. We do mean a man or woman whose sins have been forgiven and the righteousness of the Lord has been imputed to them. And they are walking after God, desiring to be a man or woman after God's own heart, even if they have flaws and failures and weaknesses in their life. That kind of a person, God can organize their steps. In Luke chapter two, verse one, it tells us there was a decree by Caesar Augustus. Caesar was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And the Roman Senate voted to give him the name Augustus or exalted one because he, for the most part, changed the Republic of Rome into an empire. 
And he became the first emperor of that particular new empire. And Caesar Augustus had power. He reigned for over four decades. And he stamped his imprint all over early Roman history. Well, of course, if you have as many provinces as he had, stretching from India, coming all the way over into Europe, then quite naturally you're going to need to tax people. Because these different subjects and these different districts and regions, they need to provide monies for the capital city and for wherever the leader is. And on this particular occasion here, Caesar had arranged for all of the world to be taxed. Now that is to say, everybody that is subject to him is going to have to pay some money. I don't know anybody that likes taxes. I don't think there's anybody in here that likes taxes. However, it's something that everybody has to live with. Unlike the people in ancient times, we don't have to go back to the place of our birth in order to register and pay taxes. You can do them right from your home or wherever you are. But imagine in ancient times where you had no computer, we had no cars, there, were no, there was no road system as we understand a road system. There certainly was no road system coming from Galilee going down into, into uh, Jerusalem and into that area going to, towards Bethlehem. However, this taxing had been decreed and everybody had to respond. And so verse 3 says everybody went to his own city. So you have to have some idea where you came from. And it's at that point that it says Joseph went. Now notice According to verse 3, this affected everybody. Now, this is a secular thing. This has nothing to do with the temple. It has nothing to do with the holiness of God. It's a matter of raising money for the Roman Empire, and it affects everybody, and it causes everybody to start packing their bags, going back to the place of their nativity in order to register and pay their taxes. So the, so the emperor, the king, is going to end up with a head count of how many people? But it's verse 4 that's interesting. Of all the people that were going back to their own city, Joseph also went from Galilee. There were thousands of people involved with this mass movement, but God is singling out one person. Think about that. That God would create something or cause one particular event to be so pivotal in the life of multitudes of people in order to just move one person. One person. So this wasn't just about taxing the people of the Roman Empire. This was about getting Joseph and Mary into position in order to fulfill a prophecy. And if you think about some of the things that have occurred in your life, some of the events that occurred that caused you to go from one place to another, to move from point C to point D, then then, then you'll find out that even behind some secular activity, God was still involved because he is God. Let's not forget that when Jesus was crucified, that the Roman man stood up there and said, look, one person's got to be set free during this feast time and one person has got to die. And he prophesied that not knowing that he was speaking on behalf of God. God is big enough to create a lot of events in order to organize your steps so that they meet at a certain intersection. Because God wanted you and wants you to meet certain people at a certain time. He doesn't want you there too early. He doesn't want you there too late. But he does want you there right on time. So verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee. That's a long trip. 
Now, we, we use the phrase, um, we're going up to Jerusalem. That's how people, people kind of describe that. But if you're looking at it on a map and you're in Israel, if you're in northern Galilee and you're going south to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem, you're heading downward, actually, in altitude. Because you're in the mountains. But even though you're descending, the people still consider it going up to Jerusalem or up to Bethlehem, up to the temple. So Joseph had to make this long trip. I, I don't know if, if he's on mule. I don't know if he and his pregnant wife are on a camel. I hope they're not, hope they're not walking. But can you imagine how how that must have made him feel to have to take a long journey like this with his wife and she's great with child? Because this was not a trip you could take and make inside of 24 hours. You're going to be days on the road. We're talking about 60 or 7 miles through mountainous terrain. Imagine you trying to go from here over to Beatrice or someplace like that. And if it was very mountainous and you had to walk and, and make your way through through difficult, difficult territory. Or even imagine those that came out here years ago as homesteaders, covered wagons. There were no roads out here then. People out here breaking wheels on their wagons and having to repair them. So Joseph and Mary are heading out of Nazareth into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he's connected to the house of David. All of this just to get one man out of a city, out of a town, out of a village. But then in verse 5, <clears throat> she's great with child, which means at any time. You know, now let's let's remember that they didn't they didn't necessarily have the same technology we have today for inducing someone to go into labor. I mean, then, as Jesus describes in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, talks about the birth pains coming on a, a woman suddenly. And then that being a description of the things related to the, to the, uh, the prophecies in the last days. So, so that, that was the idea of the birthing process. Sudden pains came upon a person. But today, of course, I mean, the doctor, he might even talk to you about when you want to have the child. Because after all, he might want to be on the golf course. So he said, well, let's do it Tuesday at 3 because I tee off at 5.30. So let's take care of it then. Well, verse, verse number 6 says, it was while they were there that the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Now, now note here that it didn't happen while she was in Nazareth. It didn't happen while they were just getting started on the road or partway there, just about there. It did not, this did not occur until they made it to the place. There's some things that only happens once you get into position. There's some blessings that will not overtake you until you get to where God wants you. Even if your movement is slow and tedious, you still need to get there. And once you're in position, that's when the days are accomplished for God to do something with you. Now, we use this in talking about physical birth, but, you know, if you're walking with God and you're hungry for God, you can become pregnant with a vision, with a dream. You can have something inside of you that one day God's going to cause you to give birth to. Right now, it's an idea or a concept, but eventually to become a reality. 
But for it to become a reality, that may require you to go from here to there to there to there. God can show it to you when you're a child, but it may not manifest or come to fruition until you're an adult. Or he can show it to you when you're a young adult, and it may not come to pass or fruition until you're older. But to be pregnant with a vision, to give birth to the life of God, should be a desire for everybody that wants to walk close to God and to have a strong, vibrant relationship with him. While they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Well, because just because something should happen doesn't necessarily mean it will happen. The circumstances have to be created, be right. You know as well as I do when you talk to young people, when they get into trouble, you say to them, well, what did you do? And then they tell you, then you say, well, you should have did this. What you should have did may very well be different than what actually happens. So moving from the process of this is what should occur to the point where we get to where we can say this did occur. That's the whole movement where God is trying to work in order to keep the devil from stopping it from happening. And you've seen in the book of Revelation where it talks about the woman clothed with the sun, giving birth. And when she gives birth, the serpent is right there to try to ga- gather up what, was, what, what the uh, woman gave birth to. That's a spiritual principle of life. Anything that God wants to bring into this earth realm, the devil wants to be there to try to devour it. If God puts anything in you that's going to affect people, that's going to reach people, that's going to touch people, you can expect there's going to be hostility and turmoil. The devil is not going to just sit back and let you grow in grace and in knowledge and become a weapon against him without him trying to fight you. And he's never going to let a church be a church that, that, that can radiate the life and the power of God without him trying to fight against it. He doesn't care about a church that's apostate. He doesn't care about Christians who don't believe the word of God. It's people that genuinely have a heart for God. That's who devil's, the devil is fighting. I've told you before, Satan can't kill a church. A church has to commit suicide. It has to self-destruct. The life of God is too great. But the devil, if he gets into a fellowship, he comes in wearing a pair of pants or a dress. He's wearing somebody's body, and he comes in to create havoc. And That's why later on, after Jesus is born, he finds a man by the name of Herod, and they start murdering babies that are two years old and younger. You tell me the devil's not interested in stopping what God is doing. So verse number seven, she brought forth her firstborn son. Uh, Note the word firstborn. Mark tells us and John tells us that Jesus had brethren, siblings. We we always have to emphasize this at Christmas time because there are people who honestly believe Even though Jesus was virgin born, Mary never had any more children. That's incorrect. The Bible in Mark, I believe, six gives us the names of some of his of his brothers. And then it mentions his sisters Now, in the Greek language. Because there is a way with the suffixes of the word to describe two sisters Had he only had two, they probably would have just used the dual suffix like that. In English, we'll say both of them or the two of them to recognize two people. But Jesus obviously had more than two sisters. He certainly had more than two brothers. He had siblings. And John says his own brethren did not believe in him. So here we have Jesus as the firstborn. 
And he's wrapped in these swaddling clothes. Have you ever seen the ladies in Africa or the Middle East who wrap the babies up real tight and they almost look like they're a loaf of bread being carried on somebody's back? Yeah. And, and, and those wrappings are really, really tight. They almost look like a mummy there. And, and, and those wrappings swaddle them so that they're very tight upon them. So verse 7 talks about these wrappings on the Lord and he was laid in a manger because there was no room in the inn. With so many people coming from all different directions, some of them possibly, possibly from other countries, coming back to the place where they were reared. Everyone's looking for a place to stay. If they can't stay with family, they're looking for some kind of a makeshift hotel, motel, inn, a place where they can rent a room or anything. It was so crowded. There was no place for Jesus to be born. But when God inspired the man to do the census, and then when Joseph decided to go back to Bethlehem, don't you think God knew there wasn't going to be any room? See, God always makes provision. We, we use the word providence. Providence simply means foresight. God sees the ending from the beginning. So in God's great providence, he already had a place prepared for them. When they got there, they just needed to get there. They didn't know where the child, their child, would be born. And some things you do for God, you don't know how it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, even why it's going to happen. But you do have a word from the Lord sometimes that tells you that it will happen. So here in a manger. Now all the times I've been to Israel and even years ago when I used to live there, I was going to Hebrew school. In Israel... If you want to see something connected with the Bible, I guarantee there's somebody who will take you, help you find something connected with the Bible. Because the whole thing is a big historical site. There's nowhere you can go in Israel where you're not walking on some kind of biblical history or something like that. But when we think of a manger, you're thinking of something more like a cave or a grotto. Something that's dug inside of a mountainside. Something like that. In ancient times, and certainly in the ones I've been in, in Bethlehem, they kept the animals back in there. And, and then towards, towards the, uh, the mouth of the cave, the family would have a dwelling. And then in the outer portion, that's where they do their cooking. And they kept the animals on the inside. But, but here we have this, this issue where it says they brought this child and they laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. That means that they looked for a place of hospitality but was unable to find it. Now, even though there's no room in the inn, that does not mean there's no space or place for God to bless you. God can bless a whole lot of people at the same time. His hands are big enough to bless Millions of people simultaneously. Don't ever think that just because there's no room for you naturally, there's no room for you spiritually. 
God can open doors for you that other people have attempted to close, and the Lord can close doors that other people have attempted to open. But never forget that God is the one who's in charge of this entire birthing process, this entire redemptive scheme. And since he's in charge of it, he has to handle everything down to the finest detail, smallest detail. He's looking after it. Now, why would God allow his son to be born in such a lowly estate. Why would God not want his son, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to be born in a palatial palace? I have no idea. But I am certain of this, that having the record as we have it surprised everybody. Because nobody was looking for Jesus to come the way that he came. The fulfillment of the prophecy in Micah 5 verse 2 very simply says a ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem. It talks nothing about the place of habitation, the place of birth. But we do know that when we think of Jesus, that if wealth was the issue, you know as well as I do, the innkeeper would have pushed somebody else out for money. I remember the, the three years that I worked for the State Department and lived overseas and um, was a Marine security guard working with these different council generals and these ambassadors. Whenever the Secretary of State scheduled a trip, and we had to all fly to another country or something like that to, to be with him there, there were plenty of times where his... His uh, spokespersons and his entire staff had to contact these different these different uh, hotels and say, look, we need to be here on such and such day. We need the whole floor. Not just six or seven rooms, the whole floor. And then we need the floor above and then we need the floor beneath. Well, of course, if you're running the hotel, you're automatically thinking to yourself, Well, that's a whole lot of money I'm going to lose because many of these rooms are already booked and some of these people are important personnel. But once you say you're 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 calling for the secretary of state for the United States of America and and you need a floor or two or three, the innkeeper knows that's a government check coming. And they'll get everybody on the phone, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Kennedy, Mr. So-and-so, we have to let you know we had to make some some changes, some adjustments because we've got somebody coming in. You're going to have to find somebody else. And people will be screaming and yelling, but it doesn't matter. They still change the reservations. I know Jesus' parents weren't wealthy. And the reason I know that is because of the kinds of offerings that were given when Jesus was taken up to the temple. I know they weren't wealthy because of the gifts that the wise men brought to them when Jesus was born, so they could utilize those while they lived in Egypt waiting for Herod to die. I understand that. But if this teaches us anything, it shows us quite plainly that when it comes to God, money is never an issue. Housing is never an issue. If you're doing what God has told you to do, he will open doors for you. And if God has to touch the hearts of men and women to give over into your bosom, I guarantee you there will be hearts to touch. And if God has to open someone's home in order for them to have a place to reside, there will be homes for his people to dwell in. And even if there wasn't, there'd still be a manger. There's always a place. There's always a place when you're walking, walking with God. 
Simultaneously with them finding that manger in verse 8, there's shepherds abiding in the field. Now this is their vocation. They're minding their business. They're not causing any problems at all. They're just simply keeping watch over their flock. That means they're workers. And they're keeping guard because the flock, that's their possession. That's their money. And they have to look after that. That's their livelihood. And in the process of maintaining this flock, this is when the appearance of the angel of the Lord comes and suddenly the glory of God comes and they're terribly afraid. Now, I like these verses because they demonstrate several things. Number one, it shows us that when God's going to speak to someone, he doesn't have to use the kind of people we think he should. He appears to anybody. Shepherds? Now, I don't know what kind of sheep these were. I don't know if these were for the temple, if they're going to be used for sacrifices. I don't know if these are just some uh, family and their private property, but I do know that God chose these shepherds. Why these shepherds? Why not shepherds in Arabia? Why not shepherds in Syria? Why not shepherds somewhere in North Africa, in any country of the earth? Why did he choose these particular shepherds. God, he, uh, he alone knows. But then you have to ask the question of all the people that have heard the gospel 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, why did God ever make sure your family heard it? Why did the glad tidings come to you when there are other people that have never even heard the name Jesus? Somehow or another, God came to your field. He appeared to you. And the glory of God shone in such a, such a great way around you that you thought, oh my word, this, this is real. Now if God would do that for shepherds, he'll do that for a farmer. He'll do that for a mechanic. He'll do it for a school teacher. He'll do it for somebody that sweeps floors. The Lord will do it for anybody. He'll do it for somebody who's working as a medical personnel. He'll do it for a stay-at-home mom. Everybody has a field of influence. Everybody has something or some persons that are under their influence that they're keeping watch over. This is nighttime. But throughout Scripture, we've seen over and over again that God does many miraculous things at night. You ever thought about that? Weeping may come in the morning. Uh, weeping may endure for, for a moment, but joy comes in the morning. And when you go from Genesis to Revelation, you see that you have a God that doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. And over and over again, God proves to you that he still works the night shift. He looks after you. Darkest moments. You say, God, does anybody care? Lord, does anybody care about me? Do they even know where I am right now? I'm working as hard as I am down here in this field. I'm looking over my flock. I'm watching everybody else get wealthy. I see everybody else prospering on their jobs and doing what they're doing. But here, here you are. You're saying, God, do you even recognize where I am? Then the king comes. And he brings a bright light in order to get your attention. You can't say God doesn't make dramatic appearances. He knows how to make an appearance. You, you ever been to one of those parties where <clears throat> over in the New England state, sometimes they still have some of these, and, and they certainly do with uh, the, these diplomats, but you, you have a, a big hall 
or a big home and there'll be a parlor area and then there'll be a room where everybody's kind of standing around and then there's usually a big huge staircase winding up going up to the upstairs and then you know you have all these different people coming in and almost like the town crier you know he comes comes to the door and he and he stands he said John Brueggemann from Hebron Nebraska and then everybody turns and looks and they're trying to see what what's going on you know well, when, when, when this angel comes on the scene here, everybody, everybody's attention is drawn to what that angel is about to say. Verse 10, first thing he says is, do not be afraid. I'm always touched by that command. Do not be afraid because they always tell you that after you're afraid. I mean, you're already in fear, people falling down on their face, and they're trembling and they're shaking. They say, look, now, don't be afraid. Really, now. The angel just appeared, and you don't want me to be afraid. So he says, I have good news for you, but it's not just for you, it's for everybody. So in the beginning, we see that salvation is not just about Jewish people. Good news for all people. Presentation is to Jewish shepherds, I assume. The birth parents are Jewish, according to the record. But the intent and the motive and the design behind this whole process of redemption is that is for everybody. And that's why you and me are part of this. He said, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. I have no idea how long these people have been waiting on a Savior. I know that the expectation goes back to Genesis. Different rabbis and people have interpreted verses in, in various ways, but everybody was looking for a Messiah that would break the yoke of the foreign power, the foreign governor, so that they would be free to worship God the way that they want, but they were not expecting a Savior to be born like this. But God even says, I have a sign for you. The baby will be wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Finding a baby in swaddling clothes would not have been out of the ordinary. A lot of people wrap their children in such a way. Finding a baby that's born as a savior in a manger never had happened, hasn't happened since. Imagine that. Suddenly, there's a choir singing with the angel, a large host of them praising God. The angels can do it in the heavens who have not been redeemed. Shouldn't we be able to do it who live here on earth who have been washed in the blood of Jesus? You ought not let an angel out sing you and out praise you. You've been redeemed by God. The Lord has touched you, blessed you. I was preaching on Sunday about uh, Luke 23 where Simon the Cyrenian was compelled to carry the cross. And, and I was talking about how after Jesus had been beaten and bludgeoned, and bloodied, how he had to carry that cross, you know, whether it was a cross beam or the whole cross, whatever he had to carry, that thing was on his back and he's making his way through those streets and people are laughing at him, mocking him, possibly hitting him. Disciples and the ladies, the daughters of Jerusalem standing back just looking at him. Their hearts are longing for him, but he couldn't go any further. 
So evidently, in order to get that cross up to Calvary's hill, they had to get this man named Simon to do it. And of course, they, they, they took that bloody cross and they put it all on him. And, and he had to carry that thing. And it, by, whether, it wasn't voluntarily, I can tell you that. They compelled him. And he's behind the Lord and he's making his way going to everywhere he, he needs to be up at Calvary. But when he gets there, he's got to take that thing off and they're going to crucify Jesus there. But the blood that was on that cross was on him. Think about that. I mean, Simon was a man who bore the cross, that bore the man that bore our sins. And even though he had that blood smeared on his back, that doesn't make him saved. See, it's not about whether or not a person has been speckled with the blood or smeared with the blood. They've got to be washed in the blood. Angels don't know that experience. We do. We who've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we not only sing different songs than angels sing, we sing it from experience. Our burdens have been rolled away. He took all our sin away. And so afterwards, the angels went back into heaven. The shepherds said one to another, and I love this, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing. Now, they didn't start debating and saying, now, do you really believe that was of God? Do you really think that was an angel of God, or do you think that was a devil? I don't know if we ought to take this trip and go all the way up there, because they've told me that people have hallucinations out here in the middle of the night, and just maybe you had one too many cups of that goat's milk. And we, we ought to think about that. You know. Do we really want to do this? That's, that's not what they said at all. They said, let's go right now. They, let's not even wait. Let's go now. Let's go now. Today is the day of salvation. Let's go and see this thing which the Lord has made known to us. If you really believe God has revealed something to you, done something for you, then you'll respond with haste. Haste. Why move slowly when God has already told you it's time to go see it now and to move quickly. I'd hate to be running when God wants me to walk, but I'd hate to be walking when God wants me to run. And of course, verse 16 says they found Mary and Joseph. Now here's where I'll stop, because the, the thing is this. <clears throat> Bethlehem is a fairly large town today. So the outlying districts in ancient times even though the, the, the boundaries may not match the boundaries today, for one man or five men or ten people to go into a village, even if they came to a place like Hebron today, in the middle of the night and start looking in different homes trying to find where a baby was born, do you know how time-consuming that would be? That they came quickly and they found the baby lying in a manger. He wasn't even in a home or an inn. So if you're doing what God wants you to do and you're being led by him, I give you my word eventually, whether you run right into it, whether you stumble into it, or whether you fall into it, you are going to come into contact with your blessing. You just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Anybody can stop. Anybody can question. Anybody can be overly cautious. But to be a man or woman of God with faith 
and make haste when you believe the Lord's dealing with you, that I believe is the most important thing we can do. To put God first. And, and we know that God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. And we know that God will not withhold no good thing from him or her who walks uprightly. And as I said earlier, the steps of a good man ordered by the Lord. The psalmist says, my times are in thy hands, O God. Don't get mad at God about his calendar. It's his. You'll meet the right people at the right time. See, If it's your season, it'll happen then. But for right now, my season is here. For you, your season is here in this area. For right now, God allowed us to be born in this generation. And for every day that we have while we're here, here on planet Earth, we have to praise the Lord and thank God for what we've been allowed to see. You've seen things your grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents would have loved to see. Some of you were born when there, when there were no skyscraping buildings, but there are a bunch of them now. Some of you came into this world before there were rockets that could make it to the moon. We've got a, we've got a government now that can put stuff on Mars, little robotic things. Send back images and pictures. So Daniel said that in those last days, great exploits will be done by those that know their God. So if we walk with God, we can expect God to do great and mighty things. Amen? Amen. Isn't it a great day to be alive? Wow. God. At least we're on this side of Calvary. I mean, in the Old Testament, they had the hope that he was coming. He's coming. He's coming. But we have the faith that he has come. He has come. He has made it here. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we are happy that we can look into this story because this season reminds us over and over again of how wonderful your son is. Every time we see these beautiful lights, Lord, we're reminded of the light of the world, that it radiates the sky when the angels appear and talk about the glad tidings. Father, during this season, give us plenty of opportunity to witness and be a blessing to other people. We love you, we worship you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen.